Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Hey, everybody. We're back. It's Lectures on Lacan. You may have found us through Instagram, Substack, whatever. Aren't I supposed to say that at the start of these things? Isn't that where I'm supposed to do is like plug our socials? <laughs> you know, I just love being here. I love talking about this stuff with y'all. Um, I love talking with my students about this too, but this is really fun. This is a really fun thing. It's one of the greatest things for me that came of the pandemic. And I know it's weird to talk about great things coming of the pandemic, but being able to link up with you all across so many time zones is really where it's at. I think it's just a tremendous benefit of all of this, this turn to Zoom. It's also tragic. Time and touch can't be mediated. And in an age when it's so easy to connect with others via Zoom, email, Instagram Live, whatever, um, I would like to say that it makes touch and time spent together more important, not less. The easier it gets to connect virtually from afar, the more meaningful it is when you can be there in person. I long for that. I think that would be great. Um, a lot of folks on this call, given our starting 10 a.m. slot, are in from Europe. Um, I'll be there in November. A series of talks in Rome. Looks like four are shaping up right now. I don't know if there are any Italians on the call, any Romans on the call, um, but you're welcome to join. And I'm going to try and get the hosts of those events in Rome in November to have them live streamed, perhaps on YouTube, um, see if Instagram might host that. Um, but definitely they'll be recorded, maybe chopped up and put into the podcast, which by the way, as we're getting started here, a lot of you are checking out this podcast. The podcast is a riot. I love this. This is fabulous. I love podcasts. I think this is great. Who knows? Maybe it's the future of lectures on Lacan, but a major breakthrough, big news coming up about the podcast, a collaboration with an artist that is really my hero. And this guy is just putting out the best stuff that I've seen in a while. And uh, and yeah, he and I are going to be doing something pretty soon. Um, maybe something at the front and back end of every episode. Uh, more on that soon. For now, we've got the drive. So let's get right to it. The drive. At the level of the drive, there are openings galore. And that's the important thing to remember about the drive. The first headline that we have here is this. The cause of desire is the object of the drive. The cause of desire is the experience of lack. We'll talk about that today. Now, it's all over previous lectures. If you want this in spades, check out our series on anxiety and our series on Seminar 11. So I'm not gonna rehearse all that stuff because it's out there, it's available to you. But I do wanna emphasize this. Object little a is a symbol for the experience of lack. The little hole in the middle of the a to indicate where things ain't. That little a marks the object cause of desire. 
it tells us that there's an experience of lack that gets the wheel of desire rolling, rolling towards objects that we hope stuff into that lack. Desire moves quickly away from its cause. It doesn't want to deal with lack. And yet that is precisely what desire always winds up with. You might even say the telos of desire is more desire. And by extension, a kind of blinded relationship to the lack that causes it. Desire, though, moves in a different direction from drive. Drive starts with all the stuff that we think we want. All the imaginary fixations in the world of stuff, objects, things, consumer entities, quids and quotes and widgets, and moves from them quickly back to the cause of desire, symbolized again by object little a. That's why I say the cause of desire is the object of the drive. And these two things are moving in different directions. Desire proceeds via sublimation as far as the drive is concerned. We'll talk about that. The drive, as I said last time, proceeds via desublimation. It proceeds from the stuff, these objects that have been elevated to the dignity of the thing, which is an unfortunate takeaway from seminar seven. Not that Lacan doesn't mean what he's saying there when he says that sublimation shows that ob ordinary objects are elevated to the level of the thing, dignified even with the level of the thing. What's important to note, though, is the indignity that Das Ding suffers when ordinary objects are brought to bear. What the drive does is it reverses that process. It desublimates moving from imaginary objects, stuff that desire is constantly chasing, the object of desire, back to the cause of desire, not objects, but openings. And that's important here because the opening that conditions desire is an opening caused by the prohibition of an object, typically a body part, connected to another opening, one of many mouths on the human body. Prohibit the breast in weaning, makes the mouth not just an erogenous zone because it's full of nerve endings, but one that's supercharged with logics of prohibition. And these openings, the erogenous zones, sources of the drive, are portals to what we really lack which is libido. So you can see how the drive in reversing the course of desire is gonna march us from imaginary objects to objects little a, back to partial objects, from there to the erogenous zones to which these objects remain attached at some level. And through those erogenous zones, which are archaic residues of libido, by the way, back into this pure, undivided sense of life, a body that is pre-organized, not disorganized. This may be the body without organs. That question is still open for us. My point at this level is just to emphasize the amount of openings and portals that the drive accesses. 
It does not work at the level of the object. It works at the level of the opening. Erogenous zones, sources of the drive. These are openings. Object causes, object little a. This is an opening. It's not an object. It's a lack, a space, an opening. You might even say the circuit of the drive, the circuit itself that comes up loops around like a child blowing bubbles with gum and returns back to its source, even the circuit of the drive, that it runs around the opening that is little a, forms itself a kind of open structure, a vascular structure. That's partly why we ended our last lecture on the drive talking about my kiddo blowing bubbles. Think about the musculature and the way we use the fence of the teeth and the tongue and the lips and crucially air inhaled, exhaled into the bubble, brought back in. That pulsative, rhythmic, in, out, through openings, most of which can be closed also, is crucial, not just to the drive. It's also crucial to psychoanalysis. Psychoanalysis is a science. We talked about this last time as well. But it is not a science that is concerned with objectivity, with objects in the world. It's not concerned with stuff. It's concerned with the cause for stuff. It's concerned not with objects, but with openings. Its target is not objectivity. Its stake is not objectivity, but instead what I called objectality which is not the study of objects in the world, but instead of a certain dimension of the world that makes objects possible. Objectality studies the condition of possibility for stuff that modern science can then focus on and study. So the object of inquiry and psychoanalysis is also an opening at the level of the cause. And that's the science of psychoanalysis. It's a science of cause. That's why we talk about objea as the object cause of desire. We're concerned with causes, less so with effects, although many of the key concepts in psychoanalysis are effects, the real jouissance as we often conceive of it. These are effect structures of castration and the symbolic, but it's at the level of the cause that Lacan sees psychoanalysis developing. I wanna add one more thing that's gonna put us on the path and show us one more way that openings figure largely here, not just at the level of the drive, our specific topic, not just at the broad level of inquiry of psychoanalysis, but specifically at the level of the object, the primary object, the starting original object of psychoanalysis, the discovery that Freud makes in his early 40s, the unconscious. The unconscious is indeed structured like a language, blah, blah, blah. Not that that's an irrelevant point, but just we've heard enough about that. The unconscious though, has a temporal pulsative structure. It has an edge-like structure, a rim-like structure. This is what Lacan is starting to realize in the 60s as he turns away from the symbolic, away from language, and into the real. 
is that the way the unconscious works is sometimes it's hard as rock. Other times it's the pulsative walls of a cave. Certain type of cave in particular, as we're going to see. If you've got ears to hear, of course, I'm starting to put us on the path of position of the unconscious. This essay that I invited everybody to read before today's session. The unconscious is also wrapped up in moments of opening and closing. We're going to focus on that today as well. It may even be one of the primary stakes we get at here. The drive, psychoanalysis, and the unconscious itself, they're all wrapped up in logics of opening. Openings that can be closed, openings that have rim-like structures, et cetera, et cetera. We'll get to it. So let's start with this essay, Position of the Unconscious. Now, those of you with French, you know that position in French means a lot like position in English. It's a location. It can mean a place and the like, but it can also mean a stance. It can mean a posture, a pose. Position can also mean an attitude, to take a position towards something. And I want to offer this shout out to my man, Kenneth Burke here. Attitudes are incipient acts. To persuade somebody is not to force them to do something. That's not persuasion, that's compulsion. Compulsion occurs by the barrel of a gun. You will march or you will die. Persuasion is by coaxing, by luring, drawing. It does not operate at the level of the act. You don't persuade someone by forcing them to do something. You persuade someone by causing their attitude toward a certain entity or act to shift. Rhetorical theory from antiquity forward has been about the art of attitude adjustment. You don't change how people act, you change how they think because an attitude is an incipient act. Once you've changed someone's mind, you're now primed to change their act. Which is why, as you know, knowledge is only half the battle here. You can lead, or I'll skip the metaphors here, from G.I. Joe to horses led to water. Let's just cut to the chase. It's one thing to have the big breakthrough, an analytic experience, when you realize, oh, shit, that's the thing I keep doing over and over again. Oh, that might be where that comes from. But that big insight doesn't immediately translate into changed living, better conduct, right living, non-symptomatic living. It doesn't work that way. The same level and degree and number of habits that went into producing the clinical structure have to be done differently in order to unwind it. So it's not like once you change someone's mind and bring them to the insight <clears throat> that they're immediately willing to go in a certain direction. It takes time. It takes time. But attitudes are incipient acts. And I'm emphasizing this because the question of the position of the unconscious is not just a question of where the unconscious is. It's a question of an implicit how the unconscious operates. It's Jesus. not just a where, but there's also a how involved in Lacan's choice of this word position of the unconscious. What I'm trying to get at here is that 
the unconscious does have a spatial, geometric, topological position. But it also is dynamic, operative, and has a temporal structure as well. It's not just spatial. That's why all this emphasis in psychoanalysis on the where can be misleading. Where it was, so on and so forth. The spatiality of the unconscious, this other place, is completely important. It's very relevant. Crucially missed, though, often in those conversations is the way that the unconscious is a temporal structure. It moves also according to time. In fact, the movement of the unconscious, when it pops up and when it goes away, is by way of temporal pulsation. These are pulses in time, openings in time, at the level of symptomatic expression, slip and the like, that allow for the unconscious to find expression. And then also the transference, which would be the opposite, which would be a closure. Transference is important because it shows you where there is an opening for the unconscious, although that opening is presently closed. So you see at the level of the unconscious, a structure that's not just linguistic, but also edge-like. That's gonna be important as well to remember. So even readings of unconscious at the level of structure can oftentimes go astray. It's not just that the unconscious is structured like a language, it's that it also has an edge-like structure that's gonna become important in this essay position of the unconscious. But it also has a key operation. There's an operationality of the unconscious and its move is by temporal pulsation. You have openings that are oftentimes caused by trauma. The primal scene is an incision or a cut that produces an opening, an opening through which further down the road, symptomatic expressions can pop up. It's the causeway for symptoms, but it also has closings. The trauma is also what allows for repression, a closing of sorts. And further down the road, transference which as you heard me just say, is also a closing of sorts. If you've read seminar 11, you know I'm not straying far from this text. This is Lacan breaking down basically how the structure of repression and return of the repressed works. You're cruising along, you have a traumatic experience, a signifier of that experience is repressed. It goes into this newly founded place called the unconscious, where it then mixes up with other signifiers. And then later on in a different scenario, circumstance, you have a return of the repressed because that signifier now connects to another signifier in your environment and pow. The trauma and that symptomatic pow are openings, temporal pulsations, pulsations in the lived experience of the individual, moments of seizure or rupture, openings in time, openings for something other than just the elapse of time, something more retrospective, more insightful. Psychoanalytic anamnesis is what I'm talking about here. The resubjectivization of one's past to transform it into one's history. Again, um, we've covered this in other lectures, so I'm not gonna get too far into it. What's new for us, y'all, starts on page 710 of Ecree. Now, listen, many of you don't have the book. That's cool. The book is linked 
on the same page where you found the link for this Zoom call. So if you go back to that page in our Substack, you'll see under these readings, there's a little access it here. You can click on that, then you've got a PDF of the standard English translation of a Cree. Worth having in front of you because we're gonna be looking at probably five or six pages closely read from position of the unconscious, all to put us right on top of the drive. Check out how this works. Page 710 in the standard English translation. It's deep. You hear that? You hear all the page turnings? It's important to note. It's worth noting. This is how far in the book we get by the time position of the unconscious pops up. The goods begin at the bottom of the page on page 710. Immediately notice what's happening, the symposium. And check it out. Freud is a guest one can risk inviting impromptu to the symposium. The symposium <clears throat> is like the backstory that's happening here. And I think it's one of the least explored aspects of the drive. You heard me say it last time, those of you in the Seminar 11 series also heard me end on this point. This is exactly where Seminar 11 ends, of course, on the topic of love. The symposium is about love. It is also the fundamental text that Lacan takes up in Seminar 8, which is not called love, by the way, you know what it's called. Seminar eight is also where we get introduced to other characters, not just Aristophanes, but also crucially Alcibiades. That is the background of what's happening with the drive because the primary stake of the drive isn't just connecting to your libido, reclaiming and restoring some aspect of that in the midst of death in the field of castration. It's not just that. In so doing, you prepare yourself for love. Not just love of self, but being able to love another person. And love for Lacan, despite whatever you're going to hear, means giving what you don't have. And that's crucial. The drive enables you to give what you don't have to someone else than to accept them in a way that can only be described as love. It's no coincidence from the symposium to seminar eight to the drive, this background theme of love is there. Hopefully we'll get there. I think it's the furthest reaches. If drive is the beyond of analysis, love, is the beyond of the drive. So bottom of 710, here comes position of the unconscious, the topic, the symposium, clear-sightedness concerning love, transference is there too. There's the title of seminar eight. Now, last two lines on page 710. I hope that interlude on love gave you a chance to put the text in front of you because you're going to want to see this stuff. It's weird. Here we go. My seminar was not 
where it speaks. Remember what you just heard me say about the position of the unconscious. As people happened to say jokingly, it brought forth the place from which it could speak, opening more than one ear to hear things that would have been passed over indifferently since they would not have been recognized. One of my auditors put it naively, announcing the marvelous fact that that very evening, or perhaps just the day before, he had come across in a session with a patient that I had said in my seminar verbatim. Now we get to it. Remember, this is about the unconscious. He's not yet talking about the drive. The place in question is the entrance to the cave. Now you can hear this in terms of Plato and the Republic and the famous riff in there that seems to be the only one everybody wants to talk about, the allegory of the cave. Here though, we're talking about the cave of the unconscious. The place in question is the entrance to the cave toward the exit of which Plato guides us. Now, if you know the allegory of the cave, you've got this story. Do I need to go through? I don't know. Well, here we go. Plato's got this story, the allegory of the cave. And it's designed to show you the difference between public opinion, doxa, and truth. And here he doesn't, I don't think he means aletheia in the Heideggerian recuperative sense of the pre-Socratic truth that shows itself, that breaks forth from um, closure as disclosure, from concealment as unconcealment. I don't think that's quite what Plato's talking about here. He's doing something different. But here we have this image of the cave. In this cave, people are lashed to poles with fires burning behind them. And all they see is the cave wall in front of them. The fires burn behind, casting light and throwing shadows on the wall. And this, look, or this Plato says, is how most people spend their lives. It's just watching shadows move across the wall. In other words, not looking at the real thing. The question is, what happens when somebody wriggles loose? They get out. Here's the philosopher. Climbing out of the cave into the bright daylight of actual things. You might even read this as the origin of heaven and hell in the early Christian tradition. Don't forget the medievals were so convinced that Plato was a Christian, that Platonic thought comported so well with Christianity that they just went ahead and called it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Christian. Regardless of the fact that we're talking, this was hundreds of years before anything even like Jesus. And there were many likes Jesus out there had popped up. Plato could be reconciled so thoroughly with Christianity in the medieval period, not just because they had a wackadoo mindset without a chronological sense of time, allowing them to have somebody 300 years ago become somebody, a follower of someone not born until, well, (laughs) year zero. Um, which is also an invention, by the way, of the Dark Age period, I believe. In about the 800s, somebody came up and said, you know what, why don't we just start the clock over with Jesus at zero? Prior to that time, man, it was crazy. Calendars all over the place. The year in Rome right now is very different from the year here in San Francisco, and I'm grateful for that. The cave in question, though, that would allow the philosopher out is not one that the philosopher would dare ever return to, because you know what happens. The truth teller that sees the broad daylight and then returns to the cave to tell everybody about it doesn't get celebrated. The motherfucker gets torn apart, locked up in the nut jar, never to be released again. And here you have something different. 
the analyst is not on the inside trying to get out, but on the outside trying to get in. Pay attention to this. The place in question is the entrance to the cave, toward the exit of which Plato guides us, while one imagines seeing the psychoanalyst entering there. But things are not that easy, as it is an entrance one can only reach just as it closes. Read transference. It's when the opening closes that we can see where the opening is. Needless to say, Lacan adds here, this place will never be popular with tourists. And the only way for it to open up a bit is by calling from the inside. So the analyst is on the outside, notices an opening that is now closed, and there's something calling from the inside. I would wager that this is the unconscious that calls forth from behind a closed cave door to an analyst waiting to get in. This is not unsolvable, assuming the open sesame of the unconscious consists in having speech effects, since it is linguistic in structure, but requires that the analyst re-examine the way in which it closes. Openings, closings, openings, closings. How does it close? Not just where is the cave, but how does it close? Position doesn't just mean where. There is an incipient how in that where. Not just where the closure is, but we have to re-examine the way that the opening closes. And we're Lacan to continue here also the way the closures are opened. We have to account for, what we have to account for is a gap, beat, or alternating section to follow some of Freud's indications. And that is what I have proceeded to do in grounding the unconscious in a topology. Now, this is important here. We're at the end of a creed. We're in a different period of Lacan's career. This is early, mid-60s thinking. This is a move away from the tropological work that Lacan is doing with the symbolic. So tropes here, the dominant tropes, the Greek from trope, turn, turns of languages, ways of speaking. The two dominant ones for Lacan, of course, are metonymy, which he says names via quintillion, Freud's understanding of displacement in dreams, and metaphor which again, via Quintilian, but there were lots of folks talking about tropology in antiquity, who um, links it to condensation, um, the merging of images in the dream. Um, so Lacan, early and middle Lacan, to some extent, is very concerned with tropology, language maneuvers, turns and twists. Symptom is very much a twisty, turny linguistic thing. But between the symptom and the synthome, you have a transformation away from the symbolic and toward the real, away from tropology and towards topology, which has to do with topos, places, structures. So you see turns towards the torus. You see turns towards little cute vases. You see turns towards Mobius strips. 
and eventually it culminates in a series of tied knots. Hence, seminar 23 for those of you that took that class with me. Pay attention to this, though. The unconscious is grounded in a topology, Lacan tells us. The structure of what closes is indeed inscribed in a geometry in which space is reduced to a combinatory. It is what is called an edge in topology. This is what I mean when I say the unconscious has an edge-like structure. The topology of the unconscious is geometric, a series of edges. And an edge, if you think about it in mathematics, an edge is just the line that connects two points of a triangle, for instance. A triangle has three edges. A square has four edges. That's what we're doing here. But check it out. By formally studying the consequences of the irreducibility of the cut it makes, one could rework some of the most interesting functions between aesthetics and logic. And that's where we leave it. Then he's on to like retroactivity, which is fascinating in its own right, but that's not what we're up to here today. The cut that it makes, radical rereadings of aesthetics and logic. I'll leave you to figure that out. We don't have enough time. Right now, blast forward to page 716. This is where Lacan picks it up again. What we're going to see here as we get into pages 716 to 720, really right up to the end of the essay, is all the good stuff that puts us on the path of the drive. And not just the drive, but sexuality, the myth of sexuality that Lacan adds as supplement in the strong Derridian sense to the dominant Aristophanes myth of two hemispheres coming together. Page 716. <clears throat> Who wants to read? Starting from about the middle of the page in the paragraph that begins I would say the last, so, well, what the hell? I'll start because it's kind of a weird way to find this. As usual with Lacan and really with great writers generally, a paragraph break is at once a harbinger of things to come and a postfiguration of what you just read. A break in a paragraph is not unlike a scansion that might occur in analytic experience. It's a punctuation point, a cesura of sorts that at once conditions and prefigures what comes next, but also gives a retroactive opportunity to reflect on what's gone before. And this paragraph break here on 716 is one that might be useful to us as well. Up to this point, he's running his usual game about the other and desire and the subject being founded in the locus of the other, which is fabulous. But that's not what we're working on here today. He's talking about the opacity of the being he receives, and this is the being of the unconscious, through his advent as a subject in the locus of the other. So everything that you've heard, um, let's see, probably in the lectures on subversion of the subject, um, but then also in some of the introductory stuff in seminar three, um, and certainly in some of the early lectures on seminar 11, um, we rehearse all of this stuff 
about desire and the subject founded in the locus of the other. It's great, it's tremendous. But again, we're moving past it here. The opacity of the being of the unconscious he receives through his advent as a subject in the locus of the other, such as he was first produced by the other's summoning. I love it. Come here, I want you, Watson. Come here, Watson, Edison says. I want you. Hang up the phone and come here, I want you. Summoned by Thomas Edison. The next paragraph is the one where we want to start. It is an operation. We read the last bit because I want to have that it referred. Who can read starting with it is an operation, starting on page 716 of the standard English translation of a creed? Hook it up. It is an operation whose fundamental outlines are found in psychoanalytic technique. For it is insofar as the analyst intervenes by scanning the patient's discourse that an adjustment occurs in the pulsation of the rim through which the being that resides just shy of it must flow. Okay, right on. Hold on, hold on. Hold. That's brilliant. Thank you. We're just going to keep doing this, like pause and like add comments and then keep reading and stuff like that. Um, here you start hearing the talk of the pulsation. The pulsation business is up in the front of seminar 11, if you want to check it out. And by the way, all of this is happening at the same time in Lacan's thought. Position of the unconscious, the tree essay, seminar 11, all the things I've asked you to read for this series, the texts that we're working with are all happening at about the same time, 1960 to about 1965. So it's no coincidence that you're going to see a recurring theme here of pulsation, pulsation of the rim through which the being that is the unconscious and resides just shy of it must flow. So here you see a shift away from cave-like, stone-like openings to something that must flow through that opening in the moment of pulsation, the pulsation of a rim that opens, closes. This is what I want you to think of whenever you hear Lacan talking about pulsation. Mouth, anus, eye, ear, not so much, but lots of parts of the body open in order to close. The pores, when sweat comes out, and sometimes other things go in. So it's important to emphasize also here the word just shy here. Notice also we're talking about scanning the patient's discourse. There's that cesura, that break, that opening, that propitious punctuation, as Lacan calls it in the 1950s in his first Rome discourse, which by the way, um, if I'm not mistaken, position of the unconscious is the second. His first Rome discourse is the function in the field essay, the manifesto of Lacanian psychoanalysis. This position of the unconscious, he says, is the sequel to his Rome discourse. So if you want to know like whether this is an important essay or whether he thought it was, for whatever that's worth, it is. This is the follow-up to that essay. And that essay in the mid-50s is where he introduces the notion of scansion and really puts it forward. Um, it's where you get the button-tie business and all that stuff. There's more of it elsewhere, but it's a good place to find it. And so here we are again in the clinic, scanning, but with dominant theories of pulsation of a rim through which the unconscious that resides just shy of it, just shy of that rim, that cave opening is where the unconscious resides. 
The unconscious is not the cave door that closes or opens. The unconscious resides just shy of that cave door. And it is through that door in moments of pulsation where the rim opens and then closes that the unconscious, like a bubble from a child's mouth, must flow. Okay, thank you for letting me cut in. I'm going to be an asshole and just keep doing it um, because I think it's important for us to read a paragraph, sit with it, chop it up, and then take a deep breath, read another one. Um, please, by all means, um, anyone can continue reading or uh, my friend just continue. We're all good. Okay. Uh, the true and final mainspring of what constitutes transference is the expectation of this being's advent in relation to what I call the analyst's desire. In so, do you want me to pause? Sorry, yeah, I yeah, sort good, of anticipated good. a pause there. Okay. Thank in so, as, uh, what I call the analyst's desire, insofar as something about the analyst's own position has remained unnoticed therein, at least up until now. I mean, this is this is one of those paragraphs where it's very tempting to take that turn. And let's not forget, this is also where the key piece on drive, Seminar 11, ends. It doesn't just end with limitless love. It ends in the analyst's desire. And if you think about it, I wonder if there's any other desire at stake in the clinic than the analyst's desire. The analyst's desire, who gives a fuck? All right, let's get to it. Let's figure it out. But that's not what's at stake. It's a central part of what happens in analytic experience, but it is not the final horizon. It's not the end of analytic experience. The end of analytic experience is not the understanding of unconscious desire, but the cultivation of something more like the drive. At least that's what I'm reading from Lacan to Miller to Fink. And so part of what we want to do in this session is to really figure out what that would mean and why, again, Seminar 11 ends with the drive and not desire. But what's great here is I think what Lacan's partly suggesting is that the operative desire in analytic experience is, in fact, the analyst's desire. That's partly what gets things cracking. And I think that Bruce Fink would suggest the same if you read the end of his clinical introduction. It's the enigmatic, unidentifiable properties of the analyst's desire that allow the discussion to be turned back and beyond the analyzant's desire. So, like I said, sorry about that. Tempting, very tempting, but we got to crack on here. Um, can we please continue with this is why? I'm going to talk more about this cave. This is why transference is a relationship that is essentially tied to time and its handling. But what is the being that responds to us, operating in the field of speech and language, from shy of the cave's entrance? I would go so far as to embody it in the form of the very walls of the cave that would like to live, or rather, come alive with palpitations whose living movement must be grasped now, that is, now that I have articulated the function and field of speech and language in their conditioning. Okay. 
Wow. So the being in question here is the unconscious. That's what he's working at here, is the being that is the unconscious, that responds to us, perhaps us as analysts, using operationalizing in the field of speech and language, even if only at the level of the symptom. But the symptom is a signifier. From shy of the cave's entrance, what is this thing, the unconscious, that's using language to holler at us from behind a closed cave wall? He wants to embody it in the form of the very walls of the cave. So the unconscious is not the cave door, and it's not just lurking shy of the entrance or exit. He wants to embody it in the walls of the cave, provided we allow that this is a cave whose walls are alive, alive with palpitations, alive with living movement. I only know of a couple of caves in the human body that are alive with living movement. If you're imagining this cave as kind of like a tunnel-like structure, perhaps leading up from Plato's realm of shadow, kind of interesting here. You might read the whole body as a cave. What else is the vascular structure of the lungs but a giant opening? It's tempting to read this, though, as a series of openings and then ask what the cave is. The opening of the mouth leads to the cave of the oral orifice, maybe. The opening that is the anus leads to the cave of the end of the digestive system, colon and so forth. But you know what? When I think life and living cave walls, I can't help but think about the birth canal. And I think that's relevant here. I think that what he's actually alluding to here is a vaginal cave. And not in the sense of put penis, et cetera, in, but in the biological sense of life that comes out through a series of palpitations and pulsations of the very walls of the cave. To be crass, but also to take a risk, which is what this is all about. That's why we do this live, so that it can be risky. None of this is pre-rehearsed, anything like that. I can barely read my damn notes. We're just looking at the book here. I can't help but wonder if the unconscious here is embodied in the cave that is the birth canal, the walls of the birth canal. It's an interesting turn. This last little paragraph before Lacan makes a big shift, I do not see how anyone can rightfully claim that I neglect dynamics in my topology. I orient it, which is better than to make a commonplace of it. The most verbal is not where people are willing to say it is. First part, most important part. Lacan's approach to topology is not just spatial. It is temporal as well. It is not just fixed, posed. It is also dynamic. That's important here. All of Lacan's topologies 
although concerned with positions of various sorts, have movement, life, palpitations built into them. And the unconscious is no exception. Lacan doesn't just think organically. The topic of Lacanian psychoanalysis is a kind of organicity. It has to do with living, moving shapes, bubbles, if you will. This is what Peter Slaughterjike took from Lacan. We're going to get to that too. You might also think, if you've read a bunch of Lacan and you think about this stuff, think how often he returns to animals. This guy would love Animal Planet. This guy would absolutely have that channel going all the time, probably during analysis too. He'd, he'd have to get a haircut and watch Animal Planet while the analyzant talks. Now we get to the shift though. And it's this shift that puts us on the path of the drive very narrowly. And let me tell you, we can easily slide off it for better and for worse. Who wants to read starting with as for sexuality? He straightened us out on topology. It's dynamic, baby. It's not just what and where, but how. As for sexuality, Lacan's basically answering for some stuff here. Who wants to take it, starting with as for sexuality? Um, as for sexuality, which people would like to remind me is the force we deal with and that, is and that it is biological, I retort that analysts perhaps have not shed as much light as people at one time hoped on sexuality's mainsprings. Recommending only that we be natural, repeatedly trotting out the same themes of billing and cooing. I will try to contribute something never, or sorry, <laughs> that's an interesting one, newer by resorting to a genre that Freud himself never claimed to have superseded in this area, myth. Okay, put it on your radar. When Lacan talks about the drive, he's thinking mythically. And I think Kopchak has this down as well. I, I think that, that it's pretty clear that when Lacan talks about the drive, noticeably the libido, he's putting forth a myth. Freud's got his myths. This is Lacan's myth. This is the myth. Aristophanes had his myth. Plato sure as hell had some myths. Reincarnation, what are we talking about? Here is Lacan's myth. And it is a myth that gives him his theory of sexuality. So you've heard a lot about men and women and there being no such thing as a sexual rapport. It doesn't exist. Of course it doesn't ex exist. I don't know why we keep talking about it. Nevertheless, I think one direction to go from here would be to a reading of seminar 19 and seminar 20. That could be a good way to turn out of the drive into 19 and 20, given the theme of sexuality that Lacan's introducing here. But notice this, prior to that discussion, Lacan is approaching sexuality at the level of a myth. It's mythical for him in its connection to death and the libido. And it's here. It's also in 11, but it's here in the early to mid 60s that he starts cracking this out. Um, Myth is the operative word as we shift into the topic of sexuality. Dynamic is the operative word in topology. Myth is the operative word in sexuality. So Lacan wants to be clear. I'm going to throw some mythical shit your way. 
and see what it is. The amoeba business, the lamella business, that's all a myth that Lacan is just putting together. We can talk about why, why he needs a myth here. But first, let's see if we can figure out what the myth is. Please continue reading with To Compete with Aristophanes. To compete with Aristophanes on his own turf in the above-mentioned symposium, let us recall his primitive double-backed creatures in which two halves are fused together as firmly as those of a uh, Magdeburg spear. Yeah. Halves separated later by a surgical operation arising from Zeus's jealousy represent the beings we have become in love. We have become in love, starving for our unfindable compliment. Oh, damn. Starving for our unfindable compliment. Um, do you all know what a Magdeburg sphere is? No. It's weird. Go ahead. Oh, I said no. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, let's get to it. Um, I love it that the hole in knowledge that is ignorance, and that's really what ignorance is. Um, it's a hole in knowledge. I love it, though, that oftentimes that hole is marked with the word no. It's brilliant. Um, but that's not what Magdeburg Sphere is about. My understanding is that it was some weird-ass experiment where to, 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 um, to demonstrate atmospheric pressure, there was some way that some dude, because it was always these damn dudes, putting together two halves of a sphere and creating a suction between the two that like just couldn't be pulled apart. And what he was trying to demonstrate there, I think very fascinatingly here, is atmospheric pressure. The Magdeburg sphere, when the two hemispheres are brought together and inseparable, demonstrates something about pressure. And as we know, this is fundamentally what gets the drive moving, which is a thrust, a pressure that is constant. I don't know if there's much there to go on, but it did strike me as this image popping up in the beginning of his summary of Aristophanes' myth. Okay, um, let's get to the good stuff because now we get into Lacan's myth. That was Aristophanes, culminating in demonstrations of atmospheric pressure. Now notice, if Aristophanes' myth in the classical era, myth of love, of starving for our unfindable compliment, culminates in the modern scientific development of atmospheric pressure, here's the question. What type of pressure does Lacan's myth culminate in? Yeah, we know. Okay. Let's see how close we can get to the drive with this one. Who wants to read? And please continue if you like. In considering the sphericity of primordial man. All right, I'll go again. Um, in considering the sphericity of primordial man as much as his division, it is the egg that comes to mind and that has thus perhaps been repressed since Plato, given the preeminence granted for centuries to the sphere and a hierarchy of forms sanctioned by the natural sciences. Okay. Um, I wanna be clear. I think that the logic of the egg is crucial to what Lacan is doing here. And the history of life on earth, it can be summarized in an egg. So, 
everything comes from the sea. Okay. One of the first things that come from the sea and enter onto land and hang out there were amphibians. And what you know about amphibians' eggs, right, is that they have to remain near water. So tadpoles emerge from eggs that frogs lay in and around ponds and so forth. Amphibious eggs are gelatinous on the outside. They require the constant moisture. As you move away from amphibians into reptiles and dinosaurs, you start getting eggs that are leatherier and increasingly hardier, self-contained, that no longer need the feed and the moisture of the water, but can now survive in more inhospitable climates, read climates away from water. As life emerges from water, the egg changes. Creatures who could lay eggs that could withstand drier climates prospered in land environments. So the egg goes from gelatinous water on the outside to leathery, think turtles, uh, crocodiles, alligators, laying these kind of leathery, pliable eggs, but always buried near water, not in water, but near water in moist environments. And then you get the lizard egg. And then you get, yeah, various types of um, reptile eggs. The development of mammals, warm-blooded animals, warm-blooded life, takes the egg to the next level. What mammals were able to do that reptiles still cannot is to keep the egg inside. The womb is an egg that has been internalized. And that egg can be in water, in desert, outer space, the bottom of the sea. That egg can go everywhere that its host can go. The great development of the mammalian species and all that they contain was the allowance of an egg structure inside the human form. And this is still true today. Lacan's myth is a myth about the mammiferous origin of an interior egg. Perhaps repressed, lost in the natural sciences, but it's how the human egg, the warm-blooded mammal egg works when giving birth to life to new individuals that Lacan is going to find incredibly important here. If you have been looking for the origin story of Lacanian psychoanalysis, students often come to me like, what was there before the symbolic? What was there before castration? Prior to the 60s, all you really had in Lacan in terms of talking about prior pre-linguistic states, the key move comes again in his first Rome discourse, the here and now of the all in the process of becoming. It was just a big jumble, if we could even say that. It was not a world of things. There was not stuff in the world before language, before you were introduced to language. It was just a here and now of the all in a process of becoming, he says in the function and field essay. That was really all we had. Now we're getting an answer to it. And let's be clear. 
what we are getting here is a myth. In other words, I do not want anybody to take this and say, and that's the real. No, the real is an effect structure of the symbolic. Conceptually, logically, experientially, to the extent that we can ever experience the impossible. Like trying to imagine a world without color. Tell me what a tree looks like. Tell me what a colorless tree looks like. That's an effect of symbolic intervention. The real wasn't there before. You might have an X factor of lived experience or something. That's where Lacan's working at here. Is this odd X factor to which he assigns a myth. Okay, eggs, myths, let's keep going. Consider the egg. Who wants this one? You know, um, if you ask a question to a class, I've done this with like small groups, um, up to hundreds of people in a lecture hall. You can wait about three seconds after asking a question. And if nobody replies after three seconds, weird shit starts to happen. Everybody starts getting uncomfortable. And eventually some fool will say something fucking super weird just to make the silence end. Try it. Next time you have an opportunity to ask a small or large group a question, don't rush in as I just did. Instead, just sit back and wait. You can ask and answer the question of why I rushed in to tell you this and ending the silence. Um, but definitely it's worth a try. Western humans struggle with pauses and long moments of silence for a reason. Isn't that just a product of an obsessional neurotic? It could be. It very well could be. Um, yeah, obsessives love to move. They're always at it and after it. Um, and canceling motherfuckers out as they go. They want all the part and none of the whole, which is unfortunate because they miss out on a lot of fun stuff that happens with holes. Um, okay, consider the egg in a viviporous womb. I'll let you look that one up where it has no need for a shell, hear me now, and recall that whenever the membranes burst, a part of the egg is harmed, for the membranes of the fertilized egg are offspring, just as much as the living being brought into the world by their perforation. Now, I have only been intimately involved in one birth, and I'm going to call it maybe more like an extimate involvement, because I was just kind of there. I was present and pulling things out and doing what I could. I wasn't actually involved in the birth part. But let me tell you, there are two births that happen in a vaginal birth. I've never been present for a C-section. I wish somebody, one of my doctor friends would invite me. I'd love to just hang out and see some of this stuff. But the one birth that I was authorized to attend had two birthings. First came the kiddo, and then came the placenta, the membrane, the rest of the egg. That's important here. There are two things that are born in the moment of birth. That's what Lacan's getting at here. The membranes of the fertilized egg, egg that have been burst 
and then the offspring that are brought into the world by the perforation of those membranes. So if you want to ask yourself, where's the original cut? The original perforation. Consequently, upon cutting the cord, what the newborn loses is not as analysts think its mother, but rather its anatomical complement. Midwives call it afterbirth. The anatomical complement is the placenta. That is what the child loses. The newborn does not lose mommy when the second cut of the umbilical cord occurs. What they lose is the anatomical complement that they've known up to that point as the placenta. Now, let's be clear. The placenta is what helps the unborn child breathe. It pumps nutrients and oxygen from the mother's bloodstream to the kid and also takes the kid's waste and pulls that back out, puts it into the mother's body so that it can be evacuated. I remember asking one of my friends, I think I may have mentioned this. I swear she's delivered like half of Norway at this point. And, you know, she's, she's an old timer, but, but legit. Um, I asked her, I said, what still surprises you as a midwife? As you're delivering these babies, you know, you see people at the grocery store, like, oh, you delivered everybody in my family. And there's like 30 people. What still blows your mind? And she said, the fact that a child, newborn, can emerge from the birth canal and take a breath. And after that, cry. But that breath for her is just mind-blowing every single time. Because prior to that point, the unborn fetus has a lungs full of goop. And yet, even so, what science now shows is that they still yawn. Unborn fetuses yawn, but their lungs are full of goop. Something about the palpitous pulsing walls of the birth canal, in addition to chemicals released, my understanding from the newborn, actually forces all that gunk out. Part of what happens when a vaginal birth occurs is the, pul the pulsings that move the infant out the same way that pulsings and palpitations bring an egg or a rodent into a snake. You've seen the image. Or in my book, around here, what I see are pocket gophers, these little like little things about like this being gobbled up by gray herons. And you can see the gopher wriggling as it goes down the throat, the long neck of the heron. It's a wild phenomenon. Sit in the park, hang out, watch that all day. It's great. Here it's the opposite. The palpitations of a canal that squeezes something out, but in the process, what it also squeezes out is the gunk that was in the lung cavity, allowing for that vascular orifice, that opening, that cave to expand once the birth canal has released it. So the child is in the womb, it's hanging out, it's in its egg, and its lungs are open and full of gunk. It gets squeezed into the birth canal, and that squeezing process, in addition to the chemicals released by the unborn child's body, forces the gunk out and constricting the child. And then the child emerges, and they open up again. 
their vascular cavity known as the lungs now opens up, but instead of having gunk inside, that opening allows for an inspiration of air, a breathing in of air. You see what we're at here? Bubbles. But really what we're talking about is eggs, according to Lacan. So don't go too far down the bubble thing yet. Now, imagine in this moment, in this moment, every time this happens, when a membrane bursts, a phantom, an infinitely more primal form of life in no wise willing to settle for a duplicate role in some microcosmic world within a world takes flight through the same passage. Man, check out the French, is made by breaking an egg, but so is the manlet. Again, check out the French. You gotta crack a few eggs to make an omelet, right? We are made by breaking the eggs, but so is something else. What is this manlet? This, <laughs> this, this image just gets so good as Lacan unfolds it. Here's the myth. The phantom slips out with us. We don't know what that is quite yet. We can guess. Let us assume this phantom to be a large crepe that moves like an amoeba, so utterly flat that it can slip under doors, omniscient as it is guided by the pure life instinct and immortal as it is Fissiparis. Compare Fissiparis there to Viviparis. Up a couple paragraphs earlier, you might have something on the line there. It is certainly something that would not be good to feel dripping down your face noiselessly while you sleep in order to seal it. The image we get in 11 is of this amoeba like Ridley Scott's alien jumping up on your face and you got to like battle it out with this motherfucker. Here though, it's more about the egg that I now have on mine. It's more about having egg on your face. Interesting move. What we're getting at here is this lamella, this flat, everywhere at once, amoeba-like creature that we were talking about last time. And it's right there in Lacan's discussion of the drive in seminar 11. This is libido. This is his myth that puts us on the track of libido. If we are willing to allow the digestive process to begin at this point, we realize that the manlet has ample sustenance for a long time to come. Remember that there are organisms which are quite differentiated that have no digestive tract. There's a lot of life in that libido. And a lot of it doesn't depend on you at all. You know, my temptation in these moments is always just to keep blasting forward. Let me give you a taste of what's at stake here. The placenta is the origin of the respiratory drive. Respiratory erogeneity has received very little attention. Lacan mentions it even as something that needs to be attended to in his essay on the subversion of the subject. I mentioned it last time too. The placenta is how the infant so-called breathes or the, new, the fetus breathes before it's born. Um, 
it's also what is sundered from the infant. Lacan makes a lot of this in the early 60s. The mama, M-A-M-M-A, is the placenta. He talks about the placenta a lot. I believe in seminar 10 and maybe a little in seminar nine, but seminar 10, I think, has a lot of it in there. The placenta is the origin of the respiratory drive. It's also the first opportunity structure for a cry. You see, when the baby pops out, if that thing doesn't cry, the image, the old image of the doctor holding a baby up and swatting it on its ass to get it to cry, it's interesting that there would be a shudder of pain that would drive the infant to cry to get the last of the goop out. Put that in your Lacanian pot and cook it down for a couple hours. But what's interesting here is that once the goop has been cleared out and the first breath is brought in, the next thing to come out is the cry. So here it is. Here's the full sequence. You ready? You're in the womb. Your lungs are open, full of goop. Vaginal birth. You're squeezed out through the cave, the living cave. The goop is pushed out and your lungs are collapsed, closed. Then you emerge, and just by the sheer fact that you no longer have the constriction of the vaginal walls holding you in, your lungs now open back up. Now they're open again, but instead of being full of goop, they're filled with air. The next thing to exit the human lungs is not the goop from the womb, but the cry. When this goes well, it's not a simple exhale that comes out. It's a cry. And what I would suggest in the prefigurations of castration that we see in orality at the level of weaning, anality at the level of potty training, and again, I don't buy the whole stage thing. But if there is a stage of castration known as the phallic moment. I would suggest that the partial object that is prohibited by the no of the father in the logic of castration's early start is the cry. The partial object of the phallic drive as embodied in the name of the father as the no of the father is the cry. The same cry that was the first utterance that the newborn made is also the very thing that is X'd out by the name of the father. Think about it. A child's introduction into language basically translates in, use your big boy words. In other words, learn to speak like me, speak the other. This is why the subject finds its origin in the locus of the other, because as a linguistic entity, as an entity subject to signification, the subject is always beholden to a language that is not their own. That's not quite why we use the word alienation to describe castration, but it captures some essence of this. You have to learn to speak somebody else's language, and what you have to give up in that moment is your own language up to that point, the cry, the whimper. I can't understand you when you cry like that. Use your big boy words. Language displaces the cry. It marks a prohibition on the cry. It doesn't mean you're not allowed to cry. It just means that when you cry, it signals something different. 
after the advent of language. Crying is different after you can speak than it is before. How this connects to the breast and the oral drive is interesting because we do have mouths here. Here's what I would suggest. The breast and the placenta are related ectopically. They both show the transition from fetus to newborn in a parasitic relationship to the mother. The placenta's loss allows the infant to breathe and cry. And the breast's loss allows the infant to demand. Also at the level of the cry. And that both of these, again, prefigure castration. And you can see this by the fact that the no of the father is fundamentally a prohibition against the cry. From birth to weaning, the cry is the dominant utterance, the expression of the subject of pure need that is interpreted as a demand by the big other, the primary caregiver. When the name of the father pops, first, of course, as the no of the father, as prohibition, it's a prohibition against continually crying when you experience a need. And it says, now, render your needs in terms of the mother tongue, my language, and that is a demand. The breast's loss allows the infant to start uttering demands. Let's pause there for a second. It's about 11.30. We're about an hour and a half in, and we're still working on position of the unconscious. Let's take five minutes for questions right now. I'm sure you've got some out there. I know this stuff gets weird. I'm talking five minutes, and no matter where we are in five minutes, we're going to end this essay. So let's start there. Five-minute opener for questions. What's up? What's on your mind? Couldn't be the first cry um, uh, something real because like um, the voice is, um, I don't know, as connected um, like the object little a. Yeah. Um, I mean, that could be. Um, my question would be who's real? For me, as the other in the room, When my kid cried for the first time, it was as real as it gets. For her, that ain't the real. So I think the question here would be, where are you relative to the symbolic? If you find yourself immersed in the symbolic, castrated, neurotic or otherwise, then the cry could certainly be the real. And in fact, you might even read it as just that, this moment where verbiage fails and all you can do is cry, moan, shriek in pain. The breath is very much the same way. And I'm doing it now too. 
I lived in Scandinavia for a bit. Um, for some reason, the Danes got a hold of me. Um, it was magnificent. Um, in those days, I was very interested in Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard. And they do this thing over there um, um, where they, it's a, it's not a, they don't even know they're doing it. It's a, you know what I'm talking about? That's the real at some level. What is it? This is tough because, right, if, they're, if there's a Dane on the call, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? We breathe like normal people. Of course you do. But there's a strange gaspiness that Scandinavian languages afford. The breath, the cry, these moments that are like really nonverbal could absolutely be functioning as expressions of the real. Uh, moment encounters with the real is the better way to put this. The real doesn't express anything. It is experienced as an encounter with a beyond that really can't be rendered in language. And as a result, oftentimes produces copious amounts of sweat. You might piss your pants a little bit. You might gasp or you might cry. But that's a real afforded by castration to somebody who is immersed in the symbolic. The child does not experience their cry as an encounter with the real. How, how do you know? Um, I, you, you said that <laughs> um, that the real is just an effect um, of the symbolic, um, and I wondered uh, what about um, what is uh, with the childhood trauma or something um, real things <laughs> which we would name as real. I, I don't know why can't a little baby can't experience that. Yeah, um, the first question, how do I know? Um, I don't, for the same reason Lacan doesn't, nor anybody on this call, which is why he has to develop a myth. That's why we're dealing with a myth here. That's why I said that's the operative word. Um, I don't want to, certainly don't want to, don't want to suggest that children can't endure trauma. Um, and certainly not this crowd. Are you kidding me? Many of the people, <laughs> come on, think about it. It'd be a disaster. I mean, children can't express, can't experience trauma at the level of encounters with the real. Um, no, I'm, I'm not suggesting that. I'm answering the specific question of the child's cry. And I don't believe that they would be experiencing that as an encounter with the real. If there's an encounter with the real that produces the cry, the encounter might be that of the stair step that hits the child as it goes tumbling down. That might count as an encounter with the real. Um, but I do not think that that is how children, newborns, pre-linguistic beings experience the world. I don't think that a lizard sitting on a rock when they get scooped up by a bird of prey thinks, holy shit, I just got caught by a bird. Where did that come from? I don't think that's how that works. Um, I think that in many ways, Pre-linguistic, bio-analytic life is a state of pure horror, pure terror all the time. That's what I think it's like to be a lizard on a hot rock, purely fucking terrified. And I don't imagine it's too different to be um, a baby in front of a mirror. But let's leave that for now because I don't want this myth to get the best of us. And we're now one minute past the five minute mark 
that I promised for questions. So hold on to them, throw them in the chat, follow up with comments in Substack or email me, and I'm happy to correspond more about this. We've got some fish to fry. Page 718 brings us to the beginning of the end of this essay on the position of the unconscious. And it's worth holding on to the image of the egg as we get to this point. What was life before division, before castration? It was an egg. Pure, undivided, indestructible, topologically eternal. Everyone, please mute your mics. The request we're getting a little feedback, a little, which is great. That counts as the real. But let's go ahead and mute mics so we can enjoy the quiet. You've got your mic on, mute it. Jim, that's you. Jim. Sorry, I'm just setting the computer. I'm not sure. It's not everybody on the computer trying to do it. Jim, it sounds like you've got, looks like there are two Jims on this call. Yeah, I just, because I have like a computer screen where I'm having trouble muting. Maybe I should try to leave that one. All right. Okay, I'm going to remove one of you. Don't do it yet. Oh, you just did it, Jim. Never mind. Okay, you're cool. Jim, are you still there? Jim, can you hear us? Jim, Jim, Jim just cut his gymlet out, right? Omelet, gymlet, brilliant. I can't wait um, for someone to, to, to give a talk in here. And, and you know who you are. You know who you are. Um, I can't wait to learn. Uh, I wanna say something really quick about eggs and I swear to God, you're never gonna hear me speak about eggs again. Um, you know what's weird about eggs? All spheres for that matter. Um, they are topologically eternal. You can say the same about a torus as well. They go on forever. Topologically speaking, they go on forever. They go around and around and around. They are undivided. The egg is a great image to have in mind as we're about to enter the beginning of the end of this essay. Page 718, um, let's start with the paragraph, um, except for its name. Who wants to read? Somebody we haven't heard from today who wants to share a bit of the load here. If you don't start reading, I'm gonna tell you another thing about eggs. Some of you know, I delivered some lectures on bubbles and I still get people bothering <laughs> me wanting to know when I'm gonna do bubbles round two. Um, I love bubbles, but eggs are just as interesting for some of the same reasons. You know that Lacan's theory of the egg, it's not just like bioanimalistic, mammiferous and the like. It's not just about mammals and the evolution of the egg. Um, this is Humpty Dumpty, man. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty back together again. And that's why we have psychoanalysis. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. 